Well, you can turn your Bibles over to John chapter 11, as we are continuing in our series in the Gospel of John. Well, why do we do the things that we do? Don't you find that we sometimes can get mystified even by the things that we ourselves do, even though sometimes we know those things could harm us, even though we know we should know better, we still do certain things that, that befuddle us. When we look around, not just to ourselves, we're often mystified, many times mystified by what other people do. We might look down on them and think, they should know better. For example, there's all sorts of examples around us. You know, why do people do drugs when they know how addictive or harmful they could be? Or why do people commit crimes? It, it, it just doesn't seem to make sense to us looking in from the outside. Those just seem to us like foolish things for someone to do. But, but it doesn't even have to be potentially disastrous, life-changing things like that. We sometimes just shake our heads at why people do what they do. Lately, my two youngest boys have this preference for eating their meals with plastic cutlery. Now, you might think that that has something to do with not wanting to wash dishes, but we don't really require our youngest two to wash dishes yet. But they do it just because. The other day, I tried to cut my son's chicken breast with a plastic knife and a plastic fork, but the fork kept on bending to the point of breaking. And in my frustration, I said something like, why are you eating with plastic cutlery? Even though this is mystifying to us, you know, we just let our children keep doing this. After all, it's, we say often in our home, it's not a moral issue. And by the way, we wash the plastic cutlery. <laughs> there is no such thing as disposable cutlery in our world. But why do people do the things that they do? We ought not be so quick, though, to look down at other people. We could often ask, as I said at the beginning, that same question of ourselves. Why do we eat fast food when we know most of it isn't good for us? Why do we waste our time, as we are very good at doing with whatever it is, TV, social media, gaming, when we could be doing something much more productive? Why do we buy the things that we don't really need? Why do we answer our phone while we're driving? Why do we do the things that we do? Or for us who are Christians, it might be that we do things that fall into the category of sin. Even the Apostle Paul spoke about that struggle for himself in Romans chapter 7. At one point he says, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not, for I do, not do what I want, but I do the very things I hate. In our natural human state, we wonder why we do the things we ought not to do and why we don't do the things that we ought to do. Well, as we come to the end of John chapter 11 and in John chapter 12, we can tend to look at what's going on there in that chapter and be mystified at the actions of the people that found themselves around Jesus in those days. Two weeks ago, we looked at the amazing miracle where Jesus raises a dead man. He raises him, actually, just by his words. He gives a dead man a command to come out. And this man named Lazarus, who had been dead for four days, 
does exactly what he's told. His body had been in a tomb, but Jesus tells him to roll away the stone. He says to him, speaks into the tomb, Lazarus, come out, and Lazarus comes out. And, and, and before this even, Jesus had done some very amazing things. As we have gone through the Gospel of, of John, he's turned water into wine already in chapter 2. He's healed sick people. He, he created enough food out of five loaves and two fish to feed 5,000 people. He's given sight to a blind man. But this, here in John chapter 11, was his best miracle yet, raising an obvious-to-everyone dead man to life. But the mystifying thing about this scene and what comes afterwards, is the reaction of the people to this miracle. If something like that were to happen today, if someone at a funeral service told the dead person to come out of the casket, and they did, imagine how fast that news would spread in our digital age. As they say these days, it would go viral in no time. It would spread like a virus. And this person person that raised him and the dead person would become instant celebrities. But after that miracle in John chapter 11, there's a mixed reaction. There are actually just two reactions. Look at John chapter 11, verse 46. It says there, many of the Jews who had seen what he did back there, what he'd seen what he did, believed in him, but some But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So you got two groups. Many believed, but some went and tattled, basically. They went and told on him. And so I just want to go on to read the end, the rest of that, up to the end of chapter 11. So John chapter 11, verse 45. I encourage you to follow along as I read. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him, But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. The mystery in this chapter, and actually all through the next chapter, chapter 12, is why won't people believe in Jesus? After all that Jesus had said 
And after all that Jesus had done, all these amazing miracles, and there was these seven signs, these seven miracles that he'd done up to this point, culminating with this amazing resurrection of someone from the dead. Why, instead of believing him, do they want to kill him? Why don't they believe him and commit themselves to follow him? It sounds almost counterintuitive. And we're going to look at that for the next few weeks. And we'll find some answers to those questions. And as we see those answers, we'll notice that these answers and these responses to who Jesus is, to what he has said, may also be true of us in this day. In this particular reaction, right after the raising of Lazarus at the end of chapter 11, we'll also notice something else. And that's the same thing that Joseph said about his brothers in the passage we read in Genesis 50. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. In all of these mystifying responses, one thing that becomes crystal clear here is that God is behind all of them. In behind of all these things, God is accomplishing his greater, his grander purposes for the world and for his people. The chapter ends with Jesus being sentenced to death. You see that in verse 53. From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now, the trial would come a little bit later, but but essentially, that was all just really a mock trial. It was just going through the motions. The decision was made right here. The sentencing happened right here. Jesus knows it's not yet the Father's time, so he goes away with his disciples, and you see that at the end of the chapter, verses 54 to 57. In the middle of that section that I read, we, we see something about God's purpose, though, behind Jesus' death back in verses 51 and 52. And those are the verses we're going to camp out on a little bit uh, today for the most of our time. And that purpose is actually foretold by an unlikely prophet. It's foretold by someone that hates Jesus and wants him dead. God's purposes are clarified in the middle of opposition. In fact, in the very words of one who's only looking out for himself. God does indeed work in mysterious ways. So let's have our Bibles open to John eleven forty five and following, and let's look together at this. Like I said, this comes right on the heels of that great miracle. Verse 44 says, The man who had died came out. And we have to sort of read those words again and, and to be amazed. Previously, dead men don't come out of tombs and walk, but this dead man did at the command of Jesus. Then verse 45 says, many who had seen what he did, so these people observed what he had done, believed, but some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Notice, first of all, that they all know that Jesus did this. That much is clear. They, they all acknowledge that it was Jesus who made this happen, whether it's those who believe or those who have it in for him. There's no doubt to them that this is a miracle. That much is not in question at this point. And the Pharisees and chief priests confirm that down in verse 47. This man performs many signs. So they don't anymore question the fact that Jesus can do miracles. That, that is no longer in doubt, even though they still, they still prefer to call him this man. But now they see him as a threat. They see him as a threat to their identity and really just a threat to their, to their position 
and to their power. Look again at their words there in verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. By the way, an interesting thing in this section here is that Jesus doesn't utter any words in this whole section. So this is all about the people that don't believe. But they set the stage for what God is about to do. They, they're unintentionally setting the stage for God's purposes in saving a people unto himself through the death of his son. Anyways, let's look at the reason for their fear. In other words, when they say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation, they're, they're saying, if we just let him keep doing these miracles, it's going to attract a, a mass following of believers that are going to flock behind Jesus. And that's going to draw the attention of the Romans. And if that draws the attention of the Romans, it's going to mean the end of our power as we know it. The background here is that the Romans kind of had kind of allowed the Jews to, to practice their religion and, and had kind of allowed them to have a leadership structure in place as long as they didn't upset the peace, as long as they didn't cause any trouble. So the Jews would, could carry on their religion, really, without any opposition. But that religious structure became a little bit of a political power structure as well. And it's that power structure that they thought would be threatened by any kind of uprising from these Jesus believers. The Romans would find out about it, they thought, and would take away, as they say, both our place and our nation, meaning their temple and their, their identity, their independence. All of that made me wonder if there are people today Maybe some of us who might feel threatened by Jesus in these same kinds of ways. Namely, that Jesus presents a threat to our independence and to our power structures. I wonder if we sometimes feel threatened by Jesus in this way. Maybe we're afraid that following Jesus, and by that I mean totally following Jesus, presents a threat to the lifestyle that we have created for ourselves. Or presents a threat to our right to govern ourselves. We, we think we all have that right to do that. To be in control of our own lives. To be the captain of our own souls. To do things that way that we want to do them. Maybe down deep we realize that believing in Jesus might mean that we have to change the way that we think. That we might have to change the way that we act. The way that we talk. The priorities that we have set for ourselves. And we're not sure that we like that. We like being our own authority. We prefer to do things the way we are accustomed to doing them. But when it comes to living like Jesus, following his example of service and sacrifice and self-denial, well, we're not so sure. We maybe don't mind keeping Jesus at a bit of a distance and and even honoring him from a distance. But when that means that we might have to make some changes to our self-created independence and right to make our own decisions, now it starts to get a little bit threatening. Well, these chief priests and Pharisees here in John 11 
were religious. Of that, there is no doubt. They were strictly religious. They were, to the detail, religious. But they couldn't bring themselves to believe Jesus. Their position became more important to them than than following Christ and making this transformation in their lives. And when Jesus came around and started performing these unmistakable miracles that authenticated his claims to be God, well, that was too much for them. Rather than believing Jesus and giving themselves over to him and entrusting themselves to him, they wanted to grasp on to their independence and their power. They think that Jesus is going to ruin everything that they had attained for themselves. And so they ask themselves in this little meeting that they're having, what are we going to do? What are we to do? And into those deliberations, someone speaks. Someone speaks into their dilemma. One of them, verse 49, the high priest named Caiaphas has an answer. And for him, we notice here that the answer is very obvious. He just sort of dismisses their confusion and in his pride and in his arrogance says, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand, and here comes the solution, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So let's just go back and picture this. Let's recap the scene. Jesus has raised a dead man. Uh, Many believed in Jesus right away. The ones that didn't believe get word over to the Jewish authorities there in Jerusalem where they convene a quick meeting of what amounts to what would today maybe be the Supreme Court to try and figure out what to do about Jesus' rising popularity. They, They can't argue against the genuineness of the miracles anymore, and so they're at a loss. And they feel like everything is about to change. So what's left to do? Well, Caiaphas is the guy that gives the obvious answer. We've got to do away with Jesus. And he even makes murder, did you notice, sound like a reasonable solution. If it's Jesus that threatens our nation, hey, it's better for you that one man die than the whole nation. It's kind of a math solution, right? A a, a lesser evil for a greater good. Just rather one than the many. If we just take out the queen bee, it's going to finish out the whole colony. It's amazing how evil can be made to sound reasonable. He thinks at this point he's just being judicious and rational. We've got to preserve ourselves. We've got to preserve our nation. We've got to preserve our power and our independence. Their their motive here is survival, not truth. And when our motive is survival, anything can be made to sound rational, even the murder of Jesus. They had made up their minds that this is the only alternative. And Caiaphas here even tries to play the hero, right? This is this is for the good of the nation. Well, the tragedy is that their hearts were obviously hardened and their consciences were hardened. They had heard Jesus' words by this point. They were very clear. They had seen his miracles. They were very clear. But they were resolute in their opposition. They rejected the one who could give them way more than anything that they could accomplish for themselves in terms of earthly power. 
way more. Sometimes we have a hard time seeing past the ability to have earthly power. And it's especially hard when we have already accumulated earthly attainments. When we've maybe created a good level of comfort for ourselves. When we have some degree of so-called success. Even if we are just living a relatively good life. When we get to that point, it becomes more difficult to see that even we need Jesus. And so even when he comes to offer something immeasurably better, namely eternal treasure in heaven, namely the surpassing value of knowing Christ, we have a hard time seeing that as desirable for some reason. We are far too satisfied with what we can have here. We are far too eager too eager to substitute earthly attainments for eternal gain. The answer for the council at this point was to silence Jesus, naturally, right? Ironically, the answer for this gathering of leaders was a substitution. Rather than the whole nation perish, let's have one man perish. And in the next verses, John interjects to say that this is not just irony, this is actually God's very providence and purpose and plan. Amazingly, God is using these evil deliberations to accomplish his very best purposes for all those who would believe. God is using evil, self-serving plans as even prophetic, God-serving plans. Caiaphas Caiaphas' perfect plan in his own mind to do away with Jesus is a plan of substitution. And that plan of substitution is actually God's perfect plan to save sinners unto himself. Look again at verses 51 and 52. This is John's comment on what Caiaphas has said. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. There's just so much irony and and double meaning here that it's hard to catch all of it. In verse 49, Caiaphas arrogantly tells the rest of the gang that's gathered here, you know nothing at all. But, But really here, it's Caiaphas who has no idea what he's saying. He did not say this of his own accord. And he certainly has no idea that he's God's messenger, God's prophet, that his words were being used by God to proclaim the meaning of Jesus' death. Being the high priest that year, he prophesied. Kind of look at that and go, what? Caiaphas, the opposer of Jesus, a prophet? Truly, what Caiaphas meant for evil, God meant for good. Jesus would indeed die for the people. He would die instead of the nation. And actually, Caiaphas wasn't thinking big enough, wasn't thinking wide enough, verse 52, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. On one level, that's just talking about the Jews that were scattered outside Israel into other places. But it's not talking about Jews only, ultimately. It's, it's talking about Jews and Gentiles. It, it's really talking about the church. You know, Revelation talks about the fact that Jesus dies for every tribe and tongue and nation. 
And then he gathers those children into one family. That, that blood-bought and amazing existence that, that we enjoy in a gathering like this. As the church, the body of Christ. But what we really need to see here is the great doctrine of substitution. A precious Christian truth that you all need to know about, that you all need to meditate on over and over again. This truth that Caiaphas, of all people, proclaims. This truth that God proclaims through Caiaphas. The truth that one man dies instead of sinners. This right here, straight out of the mouth of Caiaphas and then attributed to God's plan, is the good news of the gospel. The high priest's brilliant idea, let's kill Jesus so the Romans don't kill us, is the gospel. God's meaning for the high priest's word is that Jesus is going to die. Why? So that sinners don't have to die. That's the substitution. Or we could say that even more shockingly to help us grasp the gravity and the weight of these words. God means by the high priest's words, listen, that he will kill his son so that he doesn't have to kill sinners. He will kill his son so that he doesn't have to kill sinners. You might find those, that kind of language unnecessarily callous and heartless that God would plan to have his son killed. But listen to these words from an earlier prophet named Isaiah. From Isaiah 53, we read these words often, sometimes during communion. It says, surely he has borne our griefs. Talking about this Messiah that would come. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Or two verses later in Isaiah 53, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or verse 10, Yet it was, this is probably the most shocking one, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. One version says it, it pleased the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The Father has put the Son to grief. See, it was all part of God's plan that His Son would die. But in God's great and perfect plan and in God's great and perfect love for both His Son and for His people, He designed, He planned, He purposed that one man would die instead of the people. How does this apply to you? Go back to those words of Caiaphas in verse 50. It is better for you. It is better for you that one man should die. This is why we call this good news. The truth is that by rights, you should die. I should die. We're the lawbreakers, not Jesus. Right? We understand this, don't we? We are the liars. We are the thieves. We are the adulterers at heart. We are the murderers at heart. Not Jesus. He was without sin. Yet it was the will of God that his son would die. And it is better for you that one man should die. The wages of sin is death. 
but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. How do we access that eternal life and avoid the wages of sin? By admitting that we are sinners, and then by throwing all of our hopes into God's plan and purpose in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then by following him in that same kind of life. That's the next thing that's going to happen here. From the human side, Jesus' sentencing is handed down right here. They, they right here made that fateful decision to do away with Jesus. From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. But what seems to be a faithful decision from a human perspective, we see here there's actually a necessary step in God's plan to save a people for himself. But let's just remember that we see from the human perspective. We are in this scene from the human perspective. Like the people that had access to the words and miracles of Jesus, we too have access to the words and miracles of Jesus, and we too are faced with that question, what are we to do? The choices are to ignore him. I suppose you could try and do that. Many people do. Or to see Jesus as a threat and oppose him, as these leaders did, tragically. Or to believe him and to deny yourself and to take up your cross and to follow him. You see, Jesus is being offered to you today through your hearing of these words. You can no longer say, I didn't know this. You can see his life. You can see his death. You can see why God planned for him to come and to die. It's all right here for you. And the fact that Jesus died is better for you. Yet for some mystifying reason, some of you will leave here today having heard about him and yet not, will not believe him and embrace him and entrust yourself to him. Don't let that be you. Others of you might hear this and, and might still walk out thinking, I know who Jesus is. I, I believe he did these miracles, but Jesus poses a threat to my lifestyle, to my independence, to my being entitled to decide my own course in life. If I follow him, I mean, if I really follow him 100%, just like it says here, it, it means I'll have to change some things. And I'm not quite sure I'm ready for that. And even though it is better for you, you will walk away rejecting Jesus. You'll walk away rejecting Jesus. Don't let that be you, friend. Hear this as good news. And then receive it. Embrace Jesus. Walk with him. Believe God when he says, it is better for you that one man should die. We're going to pray, and as I pray, I'm going to ask the worship team to come, and we're going to sing a closing song. But let's bow together in prayer. Our God and our Father, how we, how we thank you for, for this challenge. Thinking about Jesus' life always makes us have to assess where we are at. With, makes us assess and evaluate what, what we will do with Jesus. 
presents us with a question, what do we do now that we know? And, and really, it presents us with only two options. Either we are for you or we are against you. Help us, our Father, to, to rekindle our desire to follow Jesus, whatever that might mean for us, and to know that it is better for us, to know that it is good. It doesn't mean we will be without trial or tribulation. But it means that we are taking the narrow road that leads to life. We thank you for your great plan of salvation. We thank you that you have accomplished through your Son that which is better for us, that which is actually best for us, namely the death of your precious Son. We're confronted with the reality again that he died instead of us, that he died for our eternal benefit. What you did for us is so amazing and so good that we pray that you would now help us to take the next step, that we would share this good news, that we would be so excited and so on fire for what you did for us that we would desire to tell the story of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.